Hello and welcome to Season 5 of the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers, trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping the future of film. My guest this week is the indomitable Johanna Koljonen. Johanna is a media industry analyst, broadcaster, writer, and experience designer. She is also the author of the Gothenburg Film Festival's annual Nostradamus Report, which is the industry-leading analysis of the near future of the screen sectors. I recently had the honour of being invited to participate in the 2021 report, which is subtitled Transforming Storytelling Together. And in this episode, I took the opportunity to turn the tables, as it were, to ask Johanna about her findings and thoughts on the future of film and screen storytelling. Johanna is incredibly articulate and insightful about where things are heading on a global basis for consumers, for media production. And there's so much valuable information in this episode for anyone involved in film and entertainment. As well as writing Nostradamus, Johanna lectures internationally on changes in the media sector, as well as on participation and narrative design for games, experiences, and virtual spaces. If you want to discover more about Johanna, or indeed the future of film, head on over to the home of the Future of Film podcast, futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all five seasons of the show, explore some of our other resources like the Future of Film Summit and the Future of Film Report. You can also sign up for updates and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening. And now please enjoy this conversation on the future of the screen industries with Johanna Koljonen. Johanna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for taking the time. And it's it's great to to have a chance to to connect and chat. Um, we did recently uh, for the Nostradamus report 2021, um, but then the tables were turned. You were you were asking me the questions, so now it's my chance to, to get my revenge. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for participating, though. It's great. Obviously, we'll have a link in the show notes so everybody can read all of your brilliant wisdom. Absolutely. Um, uh, well, yes. <laughs> right, I we can... embarrassed you, right? You, you have. Forget, no, I'm Nordic. I do this. Okay. Yeah, I, I have very little filter. Yeah. Um, no, you know, yeah, we're terrible. At, you know, British at, at false modesty. Um, but let's, yeah, let's, you know, let's. I'm fascinated by the report. I mean, it's an amazing achievement because, am I right in saying it's now the seventh year that it's been running? Eighth? Uh, they tell me the eighth. Yeah, okay. I've, I've okay. lost count a little bit. Yeah, so that's a nine-year project so far. Eight, eight reports. Amazing. So, tell me how it came about. Um, yeah, I'd been working with Sia Edström, who's head of industry at the Otebori Film Festival, uh, on and off for some years uh, with a format that they call TV Drama Vision that had started uh, about then, and and some other just content in the industry 
uh, or for the Nordic film market, so industry-oriented content. Uh, I was a culture journalist. I'd, I'd been a film critic for for a long time and I did some moderating things and we ended up, so we have a similar interest, so we ended up working on the content. And we were planning what should be, um, what are the most interesting themes? We were asking ourselves, what, what is the most urgent need for the industry locally and, and internationally to find out about? And, and we said, well, it's just so much happening. So we should probably do some kind of survey or report, like we should, we should invest some time in figuring out what's going to be happening in the film industry in the next few years, since so many things are changing. And I figured out a strategy for how to do that. So, so speaking to people who are already slightly ahead of the curve and, and thinking about the future or making the future, and then also, of course, looking at any kind of publicly available data. Um, and, and then by that point, I realized this is quite a lot of work. So maybe what we should do is just just share the results like that would be a good way of of serving the industry because a lot of people clearly don't have the time especially if you're a producer day to day like you just don't have the time you download all of those pdfs you know that come with the newsletters but you don't actually read the reports and you certainly don't nerd out on stats and you end up having these sort of future conversations maybe never or at best sort of in a bar in a, at a film festival so we thought well we'll just share the work and I asked a lot of smart people what they were thinking about the future. And we wrote a report based on that and it was well received. So we did it again the following year and so on. And it's, it's escalated pretty rapidly uh, to a point now where we, where we do present it in, in Berlin and, and Cannes every year. And I've been traveling the world sort of talking about this, about these topics as well. And I, I think maybe the, the thing that's different with the Nostradamus report um, you know, compared to most industry analysis that's available out there, is that this is, is publicly funded work and it's commissioned by a film festival, which is a big audience festival, but it has this very, of course, traditional, like the sort of strong art house and an international world, world cinema focus. And uh, and it means that we don't, we're not under pressure to to have a business model for the work uh, and we're not under pressure to be about maximizing profit or, or you know, helping you, you know, do good tactical choices for your next next quarter or anything like that. And it, and it means um, that we can look at, at the sort of longer uh, lines and look at macro trends and also look at the kind of bad news that today is different. But seven, eight years ago, nobody in the film industry was thinking about climate change or social unrest or how any of those things could um, directly affect the industry. And uh, and I felt just also just from how my brain works that obviously we're in part of the world and and all, that's also part of it. And our current main, main partner is Film Invest, who is a big, who are a big regional fund in Sweden. They are also uh, very sort of invested in this sort of long-term thinking and 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 taking that part of their, their public um, purpose very seriously. So it's it's been a very good match and, and allowed us to expand the work even further. Yeah, no, it's an amazing achievement. And it's great also that it, it has such a European focus. Uh, and yeah. you're not rest- and you're not restricted to one part of the value chain. It's really looking at the whole the the whole piece. So it's called Nostradamus and so you, you're boldly making predictions, which is courageous. I, I love that, and um, and why not? You know, um, but looking looking back, which uh, which predictions did you make? Which uh, you, you're surprised haven't 
you know, took so long to come through or still haven't come through or, 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 or vice versa? What's, what's happened quicker than you, you might have thought? Well, I always say that we don't really predict, we describe that it's more of a parlor trick because if you're sort of saying what's already happening, you know, with the people who are sort of farthest ahead, you can you can actually describe, or the hypothesis was that you can describe pretty precisely what's going to be real in three to five years, which is the horizon. And it's a pretty short window, actually, three to five years, especially if you're thinking about the production cycles of feature film or, or something like that. Um, that said, uh, of course, we didn't know that that was going to be true. And astonishingly, I think we've been mostly correct. Um, but the one that always sort of comes back to haunt me is... Um, uh, is the, the the changes in the window system, which I think in the first report probably, and certainly in the in the second, we said, okay, now now the tipping point has been reached. Now the window sh- system is going to have to shift. So five years from now, it, it's gonna have happened, and that kind of didn't like we're we're running a little late um, when it comes to that. But I did write in one like years ago. I said that obviously the thing that would have to happen. The thing that would have to be the trigger would be that something would happen in the world that would force a major studio to release a major title um, in 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 an in an unorthodox way, um, so that we could get some real data on whether that model works or not. Uh, I have, uh, of course, also been writing over the years about climate change and and things and speaking a lot about the effects it will have. So I think. Uh, sort of pandemics have been on that list of, of possible threats. But I, I will not take credit for having predicted the exact combination. But I mean, logically, it was it had to be something like this. I just didn't expect it to be something this big. Mm. Yeah, that makes makes complete sense. And, and now, yeah, there's that precedent and there's the data and the, although not that we... We we get to, to see the data, of course, um, which is a challenge um, for for everyone. But it seems like the the people doing it are are content with the results. So that means you know it, it's definitely um, it's definitely now viable. Um, so yeah, so thinking more about the, the the most recent report, what what you know what are your key takeaways from that? If you can sort of summarize, you know, what are the or to phrase it another way. What are you most excited about, Johanna, in the in the most recent report? What what is it that you think you, you feel most optimistic about for for film? Well, one is it's a couple of things. One is a bit dark in a way, and and it is that that the the sort of good news, bad news about the pandemic is that everybody I spoke to are catching up with this idea that we are part of the world, that that it's not just not just on the level that there's been some awareness, especially, of course, since Me Too and, and, and with the sort of Oscar so white and, and everything that's sort of also led, you know, and so many real world horrors that have, have led to the way we're thinking about Black Lives Matter, for instance, now in the industry, that there's been this understanding that, yeah, of course, we're um, affecting and re-establishing um, social norms. And that there's been some awareness about that. But I think a lot this industry hasn't thought a lot about the sort of real-world practical um, world economy, health, you know, climate, all of these impacts and, and how very, in, in all the practical ways in which it affects uh, our production realities in particular, but also, of course, the, the consumer landscape. And everybody is on board with that now. You know, film people are smart. You know, not everybody has had the time to think about their work from a systems perspective, but 
sure, we sure had time to think uh, in the last year. And that's what everybody has been saying. So even when I ask them to, to think about what's going to happen in the post-pandemic reality, and that's where the focus of the report is, a lot of people are already saying, okay, but what about the next pandemic? Or, wow, like this, these things are happening with our shooting schedules because of forest fires or, or just like extreme weather events or insurance is going to be incredibly complicated. And what do we do when we can't travel? So suddenly that sort of systemic awareness has entered, um, I think, at least the sort of executive levels of the industry, but also I think on the production side a lot, which is, which is great news. But of course, it's sad that we have to take those things into account. It would be nice to live in a better world. Um, so that's one thing that I think is really important. But when we're looking to the sort of real future scenarios, the most exciting thing is that right now, everything is changing at the same time. Um, and and obviously it's, it's most clear in what's happening with the distribution system and the streaming services, um, all of those shifts that are affecting each other at the, um, at the same time. And and there's one sort of uh, emotional uh, aspect about of that, and one sort of strategic aspect of that that I find equally exciting. And the emotional aspect is that historically, we've thought of the film industry, including the production of of TV drama, as as still centered somehow on the feature film as viewed in the theater. You know, which I love. Which I think without that, none of us would be in this industry. Um, but that's been where the sort of artistic power uh, and ambition and also a lot of the sort of financial and status power in the industry has been. The people who have been the gatekeepers to who gets to make, you know, big films with the Hollywood studios, whose films get to compete at the A festivals, whose films get distributed. It's a relatively small number of humans who have been the tastemakers and sort of the arbiters of oh, what is what is film art um, and what is valuable either for the broad audience or for very artistic audience. And that's been completely centered on the on the feature theatrical experience. And I think because of, um, I mean, the consumer's behavior has changed, obviously, since, you know, the VCR. So for decades now, but but because of what's happening in, in theatrical, which I think will do great, but it's going to specialize and, and just look very different just a few years from now. Um, the real heart of the industry is going to be the small screen. Um, and that's also where a lot of the financial power, the commissioning power and the a lot of the sort of distribution um, income is going to come. And that's going to shift this focus, this idea of what what can film be, what can film storytelling be and where can the what are the appropriate platforms and formats for author storytelling. And that's a very uh, significant conceptual shift where I think perhaps, you know, the older you are and the more established you are in this industry, the harder that shift will be to make. Um, I'm 42, and even I find that I'm struggling with it a little bit. But but that is incredibly exciting for all of its artistic potential. Then there's a sort of strategic change, which is about when all of these systems are changing right now. That means that we have to rethink everything about what is a business model or what is a viable format or how do you connect content with financing and audiences. And there used to be basically two ways of doing that, one of which was the sort of feature film change that started in theater uh, theaters or uh, that sort of cute tunnel you know with its little stages and then there used to be the sort of different variants of the television value change uh, chain and of course that's all changing everything about territories and i mean they're not disappearing but they're all they're all changing and now of course you're going to have to think individually for each work 
really, really know, like, who is this for? Where are those people? Where is their attention? Where, um, how do we monetize that attention? And then sort of work backwards from that to understand what, of course, also what, what is the project? What is the appropriate format for this? Maybe it's a feature film, maybe not. If it's a feature film, are we going to be able to monetize it in the cinemas primarily or is, are the cin cinemas going to be a sort of um, more event-based sort of support uh, structure for, for, for communicating that content, which, is, which has its real life on, on other platforms and um, in, uh, in other models? Whether, you know, exclusively on a streaming service or not, I think it's really important to see that it's not just the exclusive SVOD model uh, that's available, it's a ton of models. And that's the strategic opportunity here, is that right now we know pretty clearly what the Hollywood majors want. We know pretty well what the big global uh, SVOD players want. But we don't know very much about what we would want. Like, what would everybody else, how would everybody else want this to work? And we're seeing a lot of streaming services. That landscape is, is taking shape now very rapidly, so we have a pretty good idea of how it's going to work. And not all the content needs to be exclusive, for instance. Um, what opportunities does that offer? Uh, we know there's enormous competition for content, which means that you have a real, even as an individual creative or an individual producer, you have enormous negotiating position right now if, if for the right content. So, so I think we've been in this sort of reactive, especially in Europe, this incredibly sort of fearful, reactive mindset for the last five, seven years, in, in particular in relationship to the US giants. Um, and right now there's a, a window of opportunity to innovate. And I think that even an, even some very small players or, or even individual creatives can innovate formats or business models or collaborations or funding models or um, uh, distribution strategies or marketing strategies that might change the landscape. You know, you can, anyone can innovate something that will be a game, game changer for everybody and, and broaden this, this conceptual horizon of what kinds of, of filmmaking is possible. And that of course also comes with a ton of creative potential. So I'm, I'm equally excited about that. But I am a little bit concerned that the most traditional parts of the industry, whether film uh, or TV, and I'm including sort of most of the streamers under the TV banner, that they are maybe a little bit too traditional there already. And the, the, especially the youngest audiences are thinking very differently about content now, and, and that's a, a concern. Well, that's ex inspiring. Uh, I, love, I love that idea. Um, yeah, so very much like it feels as if things are flipped, uh, you know, in terms of TV and film if they hadn't already for, for some time, but just that acknowledgement, I think, um, for, from audiences and, and business that, you know, the, the, the television content can proceed or can lay the foundations for, for, for the film experience as opposed to the other way around. Um, but I think, yeah, that's really exciting to think about the different possibilities in, in, opening up that what storytelling screen storytelling might be 
and that doesn't mean that feature film will diminish, you know, it, it's not because a lot of this, and we'll see what happens long term, but certainly now in the next few years, the tendency seems to be that broadcasters and Netflix and Sky, like a lot of people who are sort of small screen first, are getting very much more aggressively into funding feature premieres for their platforms. And some of them will also release that content in theaters and, and others won't. And I think the majority actually haven't decided yet because they, they don't know what the, what, the, what the exhibition landscape will look like next year or, or the year after. Nobody knows exactly. So so I think everybody is leaving their options open. Everybody wants theatrical to survive because it's so important for film culture and we can make a lot of money in that window when we do it right. Uh, like all across the value chain, this is a really good idea. So, so I think that it's a bit of a, um, it's a constructed concern uh, to say that 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 there's some, that this is these changes are somehow driven by people who are not invested in theatrical. I just don't think that's factually correct. Talking about theatrical, um, I know that's a, a big passion for yours. Has been a consistent theme throughout the reports. What where where does where do cinemas go now? What 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 would you your sort of predict your your advice <laughs> to <laughs> theatres? A bunch of different things. We've been saying for some years or seeing this tendency that I think is pretty uncontroversial that there is this sort of polarization between a blockbuster business model and, um, for lack of a better word, an art house business model, where the, the offer is quite different. With, with blockbusters, I am um, paying often quite a lot of money to have um, and a consistently satisfying you know, experience. It needs to be predictable in what the, what they give me. They make a very specific promise. And I mean, I say this as a massive Marvel fan, for instance. I see a lot of blockbuster movies. I know pretty much what I'm going to get. And then they give me that in some stimulating way. And it's totally worth my while and my and my money. But that is not exactly the offer in in other types of, of cinemas. And and then there we much often go to be surprised or to engage with um, with other aspects of our identity apart from superhero fandom, for instance, or to be challenged or to to have this feeling that we're, um, you know, finding something unique or or something which is a little bit. I mean, now I make it sound entirely about identity performance, but this is true for all art. I think that we go to be surprised and moved and 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 all of those. Uh, those words, but also um, to be the kind of people to perform our identity as the kind of people who care about art and culture and and are willing to let ourselves uh, be challenged uh, by stories that that can surprise us. And there, of course, curation is at the heart. There, not knowing exactly what I'm going to get is important. And the, the, it doesn't always even have to be satisfying. The film doesn't always have to be entirely successful. There is much more about does it move me? Does it make me talk about it afterwards? All of all of those themes um, are are just as important. Uh, so a film that I don't know. Let's think about an example: The Lighthouse, okay, which I loved, 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 and have recommended it to a lot of people. Is it structurally flawless? Like maybe not. Does it deliver a satisfying ending? Not necessarily, but that's not what that film is about. It doesn't need to to do that. Would it have I mean it could have been even better if it had done any of those things. But that's not that's not my need in having that experience. I, I want to be startled and moved. And of course I, I also think that that films that are visceral, that make you really feel things in your body, 
that's I think the core um, quality for for a theatrically successful film at this at this time. Parasite, of course, is another answer, like a, another example of that, and that's I think also why elevated genre films are doing so well in the art house space as well. You have to really feel something in your body, and then that optimizes the uh, the format just of, of that theatrical space for you. So, like um, in, in contrast, for example, to to drama on on series yeah and and it seems that those i mean drama for instance i mean drama can do well in art house as well uh especially like the bigger the emotions you know but a talky a talky type of drama like the kind of um well so i mean i was a teenager in the 90s so the kind of very talky independent film that that broke through then and that became part of that that revolution that revolution of that that generation of filmmakers I, I wouldn't go to the cinemas to watch a bunch of people just talking now. Like that's just not the optimal medium for that type of storytelling uh, necessarily. And, or, you know, I might do it for nostalgic reasons, but really if I have a choice, I, I want to see something that is also very visual. And that's of course the other, the other part of that, that the visual storytelling needs to be there. There are also some other differences, I think, you know, my generation still has a tolerance for very slow art house storytelling, um, where where you're really sort of marinating in beautiful shots forever, uh, that don't necessarily sort of serve any kind of momentum in the film. That is more like a state of mind. That's a difficult sell, I think, for younger audiences, just because of how how film storytelling has has advanced. Uh, but with the right framing, even that can work. And I guess that's the sort of my my sort of third observation about film is that that I think we're on the verge of a revolution, uh, a real sort of renaissance for exhibition, in part because um, there's every reason to believe that a bunch of cinemas, you know, which across Europe have been digitized fairly recently and are in pretty good shape, will go out of business. There will be cinema infrastructure sort of lying around. Um, and it would be incredibly important, I think, to 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 make sure, and this is also a public policy question, I think, to, to not let that cinema infrastructure disappear, but to create financial structures where it's possible for other stakeholders uh, to run those cinemas um, and, and to figure out new ways of doing that. I would, like my, I've been saying that my favorite thing, if I had just had a magic wand and a cinema right now, I would give it to some 24 year olds to run and just see what happens. Um, because I think their understanding of what is an audience relationship, um, how do like this two-way communication with a, with your local geographical and socioeconomical neighborhood and the needs and interests of your different uh, audience groups there would probably change how they think about programming, would change how they think about events. And at the same time, because the digital infrastructure is there, all of these um, experiments that we've seen in the last decade or so about um, combining live concerts and and concert movies or combining, you know, doing Q&As in a distributed way, um, enhancing in different ways the liveness of, of the cinema. All that infrastructure is there. And of course, it also means that you can, you know, you can do esports events or anything, anything you'd like, really. Uh, in those spaces and using also formats that we haven't even seen yet. And I think there's a decent business uh, model for that. I think that those will be successful as businesses. So I have every hope that we're moving into this enormous flourishing of cinema going culture, um, which can also actually attract those younger uh, audiences. But um, even if the number of cinemas remained the same, 
um, even if the number of screens re remain the same, and even if the number of seats remain the same, which it might not because of COVID-related re reasons on one hand, and and also because this a lot of cinemas are going to move towards this sort of upmarket offer where they will want to have you know place for dining and so on. So the number of seats in in traditional art house theaters, for instance, is probably going to go down. But even if it didn't, I still think that there's just not going to be space for the same amount of premieres. Um, that we've seen in the last five years. There's been an overflowing in the market. The titles are cannibalizing each other. Um, and just even just in practical terms, um, I, I think if you add any other framing around the screening itself, that's going to take up time on your schedule and you, you are not able to screen as many titles over a day or a week as you did before. Um, but also, if you're serious about targeting your content or you're curating your program for your actual audience or for your several audiences in in your in each venue that you have then not every audience will want to see the same film at the same time you know they'll catch that documentary when that tour moves through town but they're not all going to see it at the same time for instance so i think that the total market the total screening real estate available especially for sort of independent type films or for world cinema um is going to be smaller but the films that do perform in that space i think will be targeted better so i, I probably on a screening to screening level you have a better chance of selling out all of the tickets in the room which we haven't done typically so far so the math is a little bit difficult to predict uh, but I, I think overall it's reasonable to assume that the number of feature film titles released released in the in the cinemas is going to to drop significantly but it has yeah. been artificially boosted in the last five years on the other hand so there's no there's nothing to say that that the number of, of feature premieres we had for instance in the UK three or four years ago would be somehow a natural number I would argue that it's not. Yeah. I would argue that it's a it's a constructed number and it's too high. The word you haven't mentioned yet, which I'm surprised, given your given your your expertise in the area, is experience. And mm -hmm. I wondered what your thoughts about that as well, because I mean, assuming that you know restrictions continue to to you know um, be be removed and vaccinations and you know <laughs> the light is at the end of a tunnel and people want to go back to that collective experience which is the sort of general consensus what what do you know what can cinemas do to to make that more appealing not from a health and safety point of view but what can they do to, to make it more appealing as an experience Cinemas have not been great at the experience. They haven't needed to because they've been operating from, from this position of power. And it actually also co connects to this idea that they haven't needed to be very creative. Like most cinemas, certainly chain cinemas, haven't needed to be super creative about, about curation either or to think very, very deeply based on their specific audience data that they have because they sell the tickets, right? So they know quite a lot about, about their audience and their viewing habits and they could use that very proactively in programming and they haven't. Um, they also knew that they were the only game in town for a specific type uh, of experience, which is going to the movies. And I think they got confused a little bit. They thought that their product is 
exclusive access to films you can't see anywhere else. Now, that's, I think, been proved wrong. That is not the product or that is not the service that is offered um, by cinemas. The cinemas are selling the experience of going to the movies. And as I talked about before, that can be more than one thing as well. That experience, that's a number of experiences that are sort of gathered under that banner. And you need to know, I think, quite well for each title and each audience group and possibly even each screening, depending on when it is in the week, which kind of audience am I serving with which kind of experience am I offering here now? But even in the most practical sense, you know, I live in Sweden. I grew up in Finland. I used to go to the movies every week. And in the winter, just the amount of winter clothes that I carry to move around the city. And I will have to carry those and I have to go out and buy my concessions. And I want to go to the bathroom and there is nowhere to hang my winter coat. And I don't want to put it on the floor in the bathroom. And what do I do with my popcorn? Just like, even in the most practical terms, the physical experience of going to the movie theaters has been kind of shit. And we've accepted it because there was, because most other experiences were also kind of terrible in the 80s and 90s and not is. But, you know, service design as a discipline has become quite massive in the last few decades. And literally every other industry has upped their game in understanding what is an experience and, and how do you offer a better experience for the specific thing you're trying to achieve. And cinemas didn't do that. They, didn't, they felt they didn't need to. So we're still being, you know, kicked out into an alley next to a dumpster after a film at the exact moment when all of the emotions that we've just had, that journey that we've just been on with the title are, you know, roiling around in us, whether we loved it or hated it, that's when we need to talk about the film or share or engage with that emotion. And cinemas have actively selected to, to make extra sure that that conversation and that process cannot be had or will not be engaged with in the context of the cinema experience itself. Uh, they're driving us out to go somewhere else, you know, to a restaurant or a bar or or to just say, OK, well, then, you know, I guess I get better get home to my babysitter and, and then do that. Um, especially if it's if it's late at night and there's, you know, on a weekday and there's nowhere to go sit for that quick cup of coffee to just like debrief the experience you just had. If the cinemas would offer that service, that would psychologically mean that that whole emotional experience and the reflection part which we also know from psychology research is a big part of like how memories are constructed and what we remember from experiences um, that's very important to that process uh, and we can choose exhibitors could choose uh, to engage with that in an active way distributors could also choose to engage with that uh, in an active way and create spaces perhaps digitally where some of that reflection would take place some do. Sometimes we see like hashtags that work talking about specific titles. Um, but even when that happens, that tends to be consumer driven. Like the, the audience tends to be creating those spaces if they feel they have a need to talk to each other. And the industry hasn't been particularly interested in engaging with that or enabling that. And that's just lazy. And that goes back to, I mean, I, I know I sound pretty harsh. I know it, it's hard to, you know, exhibitors have also had it tough, but exhibitors have also been so lazy unfortunately that has to go lazy exhibition is dead that's gone yeah no definitely that's a there's no space for that anymore and and yeah it's it's, it's after the experience it's before the experience there's so mm -hmm. much opportunity to create that magic create that that uh yeah those memories um and benefit from yeah benefit from all those like you say all, all those emotions Hopefully not too, 
ter- terrified and, and 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 you know anxious emotions after some films but yeah to to yeah, use that and be the heart of that I live two blocks from my local art house cinema and it's become almost a sort of informal measure that if we go and see something you know in the evening with a friend um and it's like if is it the type of film where afterwards we have to go up to our apartment and just have a quick drink and just like talk about it before it's possible to sleep um, and I think a lot of these films you know you're so riled up from seeing some of these movies because of the visceral quality they tend to be so intense so it's always like I know like is, is this a, like a one bourbon movie you know is, is it do I will I need that little drink and the little conversation for everybody to be able to go to their homes and, and sleep uh, and that's a sort of informal measure of a, of a typical of a specific type of quality in a film for me uh, right now or <laughs> So that's uh, the, the Johanna rating. Where it's a one one bourbon movie. I love it. Um, <laughs> or two bourbon movies. It's yeah. very intense, you know. <laughs> or if it's politically uncomfortable, then you might need another like an extra drink to just like parse. Okay, what do I really feel about this? Am I okay with my emotions about what I just saw? listening to the future of film podcast and i'm in conversation with media analyst and writer Johanna. Koyonen. If you want to find out more about Johanna or any of the other guests on the show, you can do all of this at futureoffilm.live. The subtitle of the uh, 2021 Nostradamus report is Transforming Storytelling Together. Uh, is that a call to action? And if so, what, what does that what, what what do you what do you see that looking like? Yeah, I guess it is. Um, I didn't realize until I read it through at the end, and that that this is actually something that goes through actually every chapter in different ways. That that collaboration and working together, um, artistically and strategically, um, and in so thinking about the business models as well, is the answer to almost every challenge. And that of course connects very intimately to this idea that we have and an, um, this moment of this window of opportunity where smaller players, again, it could be smaller streaming services, it could be art house cinemas, it could be um, European public broadcasters, everybody who who has felt uh, in the last decade that they're too small or too underfunded or too insignificant in some way to, to make a real impact uh, in shaping what's going to happen next. Uh, now I think we can, but of course it requires two things. It requires working together and it requires knowing, starting to think very specifically about how would we want this to work. You can't work towards something if you don't have a goal uh, of what that of what that vision could be. So that's part of it. But I also wanted the word storytelling there because I think um, the answer is uh, to a great degree about formats and about creativity and about making that that content that sounds so trite, you know. <laughs> so just make the best stories. And I, I think that the actually part of that reactive, fearful mindset has been saying, oh, but if you just make very strong content, it will find its audience. No, like, no. <laughs> we know for a fact that that is just not how it works in this marketplace. You can make the best possible content. There are so many amazing TV shows that that potentially could be loved by so many more people and they just don't find them. There are so many great films that people don't find. I mean, it's true in the sense that if you make mediocre content at this point, connecting that with an audience will be very difficult and you probably shouldn't. I mean, nobody does it on purpose. But if you're a funder 
or if you're a producer who feels that it's probably time to green light, like the green light has come and it's probably time to start this project because everybody needs to get paid. But really in your heart of hearts, you know, you would have needed a little bit more time. Yeah, don't don't start. Just don't do it. That's just a waste of everybody's time and money, including your own. So, so in that sense, yes, of course, you have to you have to aim at all times for the highest quality, but that in itself is not enough. You have to have a very clear understanding of what the audience uh, strategy is to be able to work proactively um, with with placing with placing that. Um, yeah, yeah. I I want to say that. <laughs> That again, return a little bit to this idea of, of the threat. Like, what if we get this wrong? Um, obviously, two things will happen. One is that the biggest stakeholders, the biggest global multinational companies, um, are going to be able to dictate terms and take massive shares in, in the market um, with no real resistance. And of course, over time, there's a real risk that the... Um, um, sort of multiplicity of voices in our local content creation markets will will diminish um, because just having that one channel or the one type of of uh, of platform uh, which aims itself at a global audience and has sometimes quite prejudiced ideas of of what is palatable um that is not the space where every kind of innovation can happen. So, of course, that would be a problem uh, in in the sort of mid to long term, I think. But there's this other problem, which is the relevance uh, problem when it comes to the younger audiences. And already we know that, that um, especially the under 25s are consuming quite a lot of their content and certainly producing quite a lot of their content uh, and distributing it outside of the traditional industry that we call film and TV. And that is only growing. And I'm writing in the report about how how this used to be a little bit of a marginal thing. Um, and I think if you're in the established film and TV industry, you are very likely to still completely underestimate both the quality and the relevance and the impact and the appeal um, and the financial potential, I think, economic potential of of those other types of uh, of platforms and the storytelling on them, which is very strange given how long we've had YouTube. You know, people are reacting to TikTok now, but YouTube is a very good example. We just, you know, we had new numbers just what two weeks ago. Uh, YouTube's advertising revenue has increased, I think, seventy seven percent in the last two years. Just think about that. 77% in the last two years. Now, obviously not all of that money goes to the creative, but a fair amount of that money does go to the people who put the content on YouTube. So so the viability of choosing a career uh, with your sort of artist to direct consumer model for the creatives, for yourself individually or for very small creative teams and completely bypassing the traditional industry, that is becoming increasingly viable. And again, if you're... You know, a studio executive, or you know, you make that kind of money, or you're, you're even you're a European, moderately successful European film producer with an upper middle class lifestyle. I think you can't imagine why somebody would make that choice. Like, why would a creative make that choice? But the thing is, I think most people who work in the film industry do not have secure incomes or secure jobs. They already are in an incredibly precarious situation. They're often paid poorly or unpredictably, and 
you know, great periods of time is nothing at all. So being, having a precarious professional situation is nothing new. And then if the choice you're given is to have a direct relationship to the audience um, and potentially make a completely solid living and have complete creative control, I think that's incredibly appealing. And it's not just appealing to, you know, people who are teenagers. It's also appealing to young professionals uh, who are waiting for that big break? It's it's um, it's um, appealing to minority voices who who are still struggling, even though they shouldn't be, to make it in the traditional industry and and so on. Um, and even we're starting to see more established filmmakers also making that choice in, in different ways. Who, those who have a real audience relationship are are finding other ways of of, of getting work made and and distributed, and that's a really viable way of of making film. And uh, not all, I mean, obviously a lot of that is, broadly speaking, unscripted content, but more and more of it is other things, animation, for instance. Um, and, and what's happening in virtual production is, is in particular is enabling this. Um, and also the fact that, that uh, because of these sort of um, um, workflows where the word escapes me now, sorry, but the, the, you don't have to be in the same place. Yeah. Uh, Remote, yeah. Remote, thank you. Yes, mm. remote workflows also mean that you can even have teams doing incredibly ambitious work. You know, people who've never met each other. They've met online and they do stuff that's, you know, they, they fell in love with each other's vibe and they're creating incredibly ambitious things, maybe on different continents. And that used to be marginal and that used to be this sort of weird underground thing. And now that is a completely viable way of building an audience, developing IP, creating projects, uh, and and maybe having your whole career. Hmm. Hmm. It's exciting. Uh, and something I think everyone needs to pay attention to. You, are, I, I know you're a recent convert to TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you think um, specifically uh, TikTok um, can teach film or film can learn from? From, from what's happening on TikTok? I'm, I'm trying to avoid TikTok. I, I have this little, you know, this addiction behavior with these kind of dopamine machines. So I'm actually trying to be on TikTok as little as possible. Uh, but I mean, I guess that's the first thing, how difficult it is to stop watching TikToks is very interesting. Um, but I, I think every time you're surprised about something, you feel like, oh, wow, I, I don't understand why this is so big. Or also, also I always... Um, Worn for these weasel words that we use in the industry, um, in the trade papers, for instance, when we say that something has overperformed, uh, overperformed means we have underestimated the audience. Uh, we have made a mistake. It's not the audience that has made done something wrong. It's like we have calculated wrong, right? And I think it's the same thing with something. You know, if something happens on TikTok. Uh, or just TikTok happens and you don't know why, I think it's really worth just immersing yourself in it and, and thinking about or what is the appeal here or what are the themes or what are the tones um, that I can get access to here that aren't available in other places. And I mean, I think there's a ton of answers to that. Authenticity is, is one. Um, that this, even when it's formalized and the formats are, uh, it's quite performative, so it's not authentic in the sense necessarily of, um, you know, slice of life stuff, even though that's also there, but then neither is documentary. Like it's, it's, it's constructed in the same way. It's no more or less fake. Right. Um, so that's one, one part that there's an enormous appeal for that. 
and for voices and faces and experiences that the audience doesn't find in the traditional film and TV space in ways that, that are satisfactory to them. Um, I mean, that's, that's a big one. I think another one is about the younger generation in particular. They're, um, you know, if you grew up with a camera in your hand, which everybody has who's under a specific age, and you've communicated in video every day, that is a very natural language. It's very natural for, uh, you know, for younger people to just express small things. Well, to me, I'm a writer and I would write the tweets. To me, that was a very good platform for my way of, of thinking. If I want to make a fast point on the internet, old old Twitter, like early Twitter was perfect, a perfect medium for me. Um, video, I, I'm not as natural um, at video. And in fact, you know, when Snapchat started and I had to use it with my stepkids, dear Lord, I felt I started to get these flashbacks to my mom who used to always send SMSs in all caps. And I realized that in the medium of snaps, I am the all caps texting mom. Um, and I've, you know, I'm yet to put anything on TikTok because I just feel that I'm so far away from that grammar. Like I, I can, under, I can passively read it and thank God I have some younger friends and, and kids that I can ask um, but yeah, it's not a natural language to me. But but if you have a whole generation of people, um, certainly in the developed world, who who have communicated with this language always, of course, it's a natural language for them to to speak to in a sort of social to speak to each other in a social media way. And um, escalating that to filmmaking is a very different kind of path than what would have been available to my generation, which would have been, you know watching a lot of VHS tapes and, and going to film school. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I definitely recommend people check out film, the hashtag film TikTok, and just to see what how people are engaging with film on their um, different types of uh, and, and analyses of movies and, um, yeah, and, and responses and reframing literally reframing <laughs> because of course uh, people are people are you know often making that decision of where to uh to to, to um reframe it for the um the portrait yeah Boom. that's actually so true and and also about uh, the self-education aspect that there's a sort of community education i've i've been concerned for some years about like how would how do young people learn about film history i have you know like the middle-aged woman i am i have worried about this because they don't apparently i mean they can't go to uh, a well-stocked video store and have somebody point them at the right shelf they probably don't have leonard Maltin's film guide you know on their shelf they they're not going to do those references you know working backwards um and again, like for, for me, somebody like Tarantino at least was very helpful in sort of spelling out in interviews what his inspirations were. And then you could go and look those up and so on. Uh, and I think just for, I mean, this is also a Nordic thing because in the 90s, we were financially able to study at university for free for basically as long as we wanted. And everybody just took film studies. It was just that thing like... Maybe, you know, 10 years later, it would have been gender studies, but there's a certain type of middle-class person who would just take like a year or two of film studies just because that's what you did while you were trying to, that was your gap year, essentially, in, in my generation in the Nordics. So so we were pretty knowledgeable about film history. Uh, certainly, if you had this sort of film fan social identity, because that was a subculture then, because you had to work so hard for, for finding that knowledge. Um, but now... 
And I've been thinking, oh, Paul, but they don't have any of these things. That's nonsense. They have YouTube. You know, there's this enormous content of film analysis and film education YouTube where people collectively are telling each other about inspirations and film history and film techniques and um, editing and symbolism and how to read a film and all of those things that I used to do very slowly based on books and, and cinematic screenings. You can learn you know, you can fall into a YouTube rabbit hole and come out with a pretty solid film education mm. pretty fast. And TikTok mm. is like the short form, it's like a teaser version of that. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, so, Johanna, we're coming to the end, but I have a couple of other questions I'd love to ask you. Um, Shoot. One is, what is your advice for an emerging storyteller someone who is coming into this wants to tell stories on screen where where would you recommend they started yeah so there's two different answers i think uh let's see i think in general if you're relatively young um and you want to be a storyteller on screen, that's probably because you already are in many ways a storyteller on screen. And then the answer is sort of continue on that path. Um, stay abreast of the technologies right now, I think, because there's also this concern and what's going to be happening in the world economy in the next few, few years. So being employable is actually very important. And even in countries um, in Europe where we've had a good social security network, it's there are some concerns that we may not be able to do that in the long term in the same way. So you really do want to make sure that you can actually make a living. And that means right now, I think that if you're if you're a visual storyteller, to really get into virtual production tools would be the cheapest, most fun way of, of making yourself solidly employable, probably at very good rates uh, for the rest, you know, mm-hmm. for the next at least decade or, or a few and put you on a path where you're going to be staying up, updated on what's happening in those spaces. And that, that really is just, just I mean, that is exactly how, how traditional filmmaking will be working, but it has the benefit right now that that traditional film schools are largely not teaching it. So you can actually get out ahead of the curve. Um, I mean, keep applying to film schools, that's great. But but if you get in, you have to do that work outside. Uh, if, if it isn't on the curriculum, you still have to learn those things and those tools uh, to make sure that you can make a living. But there's also another answer, and that is, I mean, I'm, you know, some pitching, sitting, listening to pitches for some some funds and things like this. And I find a lot of people my age who are writers who really want to get into writing for the screen. And they have a very traditional idea about screenwriting, and they have a very traditional idea about project development. And I think that's very hard. I think if you're a film if you're um, if you're a screenwriter who's starting, especially later in life, with with not having anything produced, writing that you know, perfecting a feature film script and hoping to get that made, is not going to work for most people. That is just not a viable path. I promise you that that's just not gonna that's just not gonna. I mean, sometimes they get into development and all that. Maybe you have a good network, but those films don't end up getting made. Um, and there, I think, then the question is, how can you tell those stories on any other platform? Could it be an audio drama series? Could it be, an, is it a novel? Maybe could it potentially first be a novel? Could it be a graphic novel script? Just getting that story world out there 
so you also so you can protect the IP, but but also so that you can see does it resonate with an audience, and if it does, okay, then it's a whole different conversation. Then suddenly there is a is a path. Uh, you know, for you to enter this industry in that way. But I think if you're sort of just a writer and we need writers, we need more writers in Europe. We need outstanding writers in Europe. So I'm not going to tell people don't do it, but I, I think don't do it alone in your room. You have to put that, those stories out there uh, in front of humans. Yeah, get that feedback. And uh, yeah, uh, and hopefully build that audience and proof of concept. Uh, and lastly, um, Johanna, a final question, Mishi, feel free to answer this in any way you, you wish, any angle, any, uh, any approach. What is the future of film? I mean, the future of film is going to be just fine. Uh, the, the future of film is going to be fantastic and creative and flourishing and relevant and innovative, whether or not that happens within or in collaboration with the traditional film industry. There is, however, uh, a completely feasible path where the traditional film industry, as we know it today, quite possibly including TV drama production, becomes over time, over just a few decades, a sort of museal art form, more like opera, more like symphonic music. We're going to continue to fund it if we can afford it in the climate crisis world. Um, we're going to protect it, we're going to archive it, we're going to make sure that some people still get to make those kinds of films and that they can be screened in cinemas, but not everybody will care. And then the other, the real kind of relevant contemporary filmmaking will be happening somewhere else. I'm not heartbroken if that happens, you know, then I'm going to be in my 60s or 70s and I'm going to be that old lady who cares about those things. And, you know, so I'll, I'll probably be fine. I'll still have films to see. But of course, I would much rather see the whole field evolving together. Um, yeah, transforming storytelling together. Yeah, that would be my preferred outcome. Transforming storytelling together. A great notion to end on and a powerful call to action for all of us. That was my conversation with Johanna Koljonen. And if you want to find out more about Johanna or indeed any of the other guests on the show, you can do all of this at futureoffilm.live. And we'll also share the link there, of course, to the 2021 Nostradamus report which is certainly worth a read. So that's it for this episode. I'd just like to say thank you again for listening and I look forward to seeing you again on the podcast very soon. <laughs>